Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Chicago could see a 10% drop in new construction projects this year. Now, since the Great Recession, the city has gone through a construction boom. You've seen those giant cranes dotting the skyline, and big companies continue to move downtown. But could 2020 be the year the boom turned into a bust? Danny Ecker covers commercial real estate for Crane Chicago. He thinks the market is going to be a mixed bag, but there's still enough going on to keep things rolling. Really, for the last few years, we've seen not record, but but close to record uh, new construction starts, stuff coming out of the ground, big, big properties uh, across the board. And um, and also the real reutilization of, of properties that have been around but empty for a while. Absolutely. And that's, you mentioned the post office. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Um, and then you think about, you know, the redevelopment of, of the West Loop and especially the Fulton Market District, some stuff being redeveloped, some stuff, you know, old meatpacking uh, factories being torn down and rebuilt. But there's just a, a lot of demand. And if you look around, that's what's so interesting about the story I wrote uh, last week, which was if you look around the, the market, you say, well, why would there be a, a drop off in construction if I mean, we just finished off the strongest year for the office market in uh, 12 years, 13 years was since before the recession. So, you know, when you talk about that and you think about all the demand for apartments that have come along with all the jobs moving downtown, it's just surprising to think that developers aren't going to be building a lot more uh, new uh, buildings, but but I think it's a, sort of a symptom of other factors that are in the in the market right now. We'll talk about some of those other factors because we're talking about a ten percent drop in new construction projects. Yeah, and and for perspective's sake, you know, ten percent drop from a couple strong years we just had would still be a lot of new construction. But you know, this is off of this would be the third drop off in uh, four years, and there's a lot of different factors that are all kind of under the umbrella of uncertainty mm-hmm. right now, and that's. Uh, stalling a lot of new development, a lot of at least among investors who are going to lend money to developers to build stuff new. They're saying, well, I'm not so sure about Chicago. Do we want to make another big bet on Chicago? A few of those factors, there's some macro ones, right? It's a presidential election year. That's always a time when people are kind of holding on to cash. Investors saying, all right, let's wait and see how everything plays out. Uh, Certainly you have tariffs and trade war threats that are, you know, at a macro level that are, are concerning. But then at a local level, the big one right now is just the overhaul in the way that Cook County is valuing properties under new Cook County Assessor Fritz Kagey. Um, the early signs of that and some of the reassessments that he's been doing with his new system uh, is have shown that commercial properties are bearing a lot more of the burden of property taxes. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the question is, we don't know what that what is going to happen when, when the city and downtown is reassessed in 2021, how that's going to play out. So there's a lot of investors saying, you know what, let's let's pump the brakes on Chicago. And that is one reason why I think you're starting seeing more people saying, you know, let's not go and jump into a big new project this year. And then beyond that, you just have uh, certainly the, the pension deficit that uh, people wonder how that's going to affect taxes. So I think there's just a lot of people who are a little bit skeptical about how much more room there is to grow in Chicago. It's sort of an interesting dichotomy with what you're seeing from companies, which are saying, we want to keep hiring in Chicago because, you know, relatively speaking, the labor pool is very deep and much more affordable than, uh, you know, in some other major markets, especially on the coasts. And the cost of living is cheaper. And mm-hmm. so when you look at those uh, factors, you say, well, the tenants want to keep coming there. But developers are maybe in some cases saying, how much more should we really build? You talk about Chicago and then you also talk about Cook County. And I wonder how this shift is affecting the suburbs because you have companies moving into the city from the suburbs and then that's leaving vacant property 
in those communities. The suburbs have, have been a really interesting thing to watch. Now, I think with, with more millennials having kids, starting families that are, that are maybe looking at should we move to the suburbs? They've obviously done that at a little bit of a delayed rate compared to the generation before them. There's a lot of companies that are starting to reevaluate saying, well, downtown offices, there's so much demand, it's getting pretty expensive. It's a pretty good deal in the suburbs. Could we maybe split our requirement and saying, hey, could we have some offices downtown and in the suburbs? Maybe the apart- that also then obviously helps uh, uh, the apartment market out there. That's why some developers have built new out there saying there are millennials that want you know, a, a sort of first stepping stone to suburban life as they adjust to that. And so that, that's really one of the most fascinating trends I think I cover right now is where are millennials living? Where are they going to be living for the next five to seven years? And how is that going to determine what new development we see? When we look at Chicago's current economic cycle, does it seem like, you know, the best days have passed? It, it sure seems like that. I think that's what developers seem to be suggesting, at least with this projected downturn of of new construction starts because new construction starts we're talking about that's kind of a proxy for okay what's the demand going to be like two years from now when if something gets, gets out of the ground now when it actually opens you know this has obviously been an incredibly long uh, robust growth cycle on the real estate side uh, on the you know job side really across the economy and so I think when we look at what we're in now you know in terms of the demand we're seeing it's hard to imagine it getting a lot better than it is now. Um, and in, as far as the new developments happening, I think the cranes you're seeing right now, I think we've kind of stretched the rubber band, uh, it seems like, as far as we can without breaking it, which is actually something that if you talk to some developers and, and construction firms, they'll say that's actually a, a healthy thing. You know, you don't want to overbuild and then you end up with a glut and then all of a sudden you got a bunch of people that uh, end up, um, you know, with you know, buildings that are half built or they can't... Uh, you know, make some loan payments because they they can't find tenants to fill buildings. So that's what you don't want. And Chicago tends to be a little bit more conservative than some of the coastal cities in terms of just building, building, building until all of a sudden a lot of people uh, are in trouble. Let's talk a little bit more about the downtown office market. So in 2019 was the best year for Chicago since 2007. And in the last five years, the city has added 5.6 million square feet of new tenant space. So just put that number into context for us. Last year, there were more companies that moved into, companies moved into more downtown office space last year than the previous two years combined. Talk about over a few year period that uh, just has this swarm of companies piling into downtown. I mean, that's, um, you look at some of the big ones and especially from the tech sector with Google, Facebook, Salesforce, Glassdoor, Uber, there's a very long list, and that doesn't count all of the suburban to urban uh, migration companies we saw five, six years ago. So think about Kraft Heinz and Beam Suntory, and obviously McDonald's was certainly a big one. I think between the suburban to urban trend, the growth of the tech sector with Chicago being a sort of realization for companies that are especially in the Bay Area saying, hey, let's hire in Chicago, let's ramp up not just sales, but maybe even some engineering in Chicago. That's a big, big uh, driver. And then co-working, too. Um, thinking about WeWork and some of the other rivals. Obviously, WeWork has had its, its problems, issues, yeah. uh, but but some of its rivals. That's been also driving a lot of the demand for office space. So those have have been really driving the train, and you know, just generally a lot of hiring that's been happening. So people needing more space. It's been a great great time to uh, to be an office landlord. Rents have been going up, and so the question is, you know, who can position themselves well with uh, 
long-term tenants so that if things really slow down and soften in the economy that uh, they're not in trouble. When we say a 10% drop in new construction projects, it doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but what kind of impact could that have on the downtown office boom we've been seeing? I think we're still going to see a lot of cranes, certainly in the sky, from from big projects that are are have either just gotten going last year or the year before. Thinking about uh, you know the one that's still ongoing at one ten North Wacker Drive, which is a fifty five story skyscraper. There's one that just broke ground in December next to Union Station. That's uh, one point five million square feet. Uh, uh, another big tower that's going up. Fulton Market is its own beast, where you're going to probably continue no matter where what happens with a downturn. There's probably just going to steamroll that, and there's going to be more development because there's so much demand to go there. You know, one interesting part about uh, the construction market right now is that the skilled labor pool is really so thin. Um, I talked to uh, a tower crane operator uh, with McHugh Construction, one of the prominent uh, firms in town. He's been a tower crane operator for nine years. He's 27. So he's really never known a bad time, <laughs> which is interesting. And he was talking about how it, you know the work has been endless, and he doesn't see any sign of it slowing down. They've been putting up a, a tower crane or two a month for several months. So I think that when you look about at some of the, the, the labor force that's out there that wants, you know, obviously has is, is been very well employed uh, during this construction boom, that's certainly an impact that if you start to see the slowdown, that it's great when things are going well. It's, it's very, you know, it's tough when things are slow. So that's kind of on the, on the front lines who's affected most by a slowdown. Um, but certainly 10% is not going to be enough to say, boy, look, there's going to be a ton of people out of jobs. There's still a lot of construction workers that are being pulled in so many different directions because there are so many different projects. In fact, uh, one of the local unions uh, had to pull out, I think, more than 200 retired operating engineers just to fill the demand for work that they had last year, which was the most they had ever they had. It was the, yeah, it was the local 150 operating engineers. So, you know, that was an illustration of, of how much demand there is. And the question is whether 10% a downturn this year of 10%, is that just maybe the tip of the iceberg? Are we going to see more significant slowdown the following year? I talked to a couple of developers who think, yes, we will, even developers who are pretty bullish about Chicago and the demand here. What do you think it would take to slow or, or halt that drop-off altogether? In terms of, of stemming the downturn, I think that you know it's just going to be something that whether the signals of job growth and, and, and rent growth across all sectors here continues to really be strong and, and, you know, the fundamentals continue to be strong. And then also those factors that of, of uncertainty that I talked about at the beginning. I mean, that's the new uh, approach by the Cook County Assessor is a big deal for a lot of investors and they're concerned about it. Tenants aren't concerned about it as much, but investors are. And until that is sort of ironed out a little bit, you're going to see, I think, a bit of the slowdown. And so I think once that is a little more clear and people can predict a little bit more about property taxes and the cost they have, if they're going to build something new, that's when you might start to see something flatten or maybe even tick up. That's Danny Ecker. He's a reporter for Crane Chicago Business. Danny, thanks so much. Thanks as always. Cli-fi. That's the shortened name for climate change fiction. It's an increasingly popular genre as authors try to imagine the future impact of rising temperatures or sea levels on their characters and the world they live in. 
Well, climate change is always on our minds here at Reset. And over the past several weeks, we've been tracking the wildfires in Australia. And today, Chicago Bulls star Lori Markkinen announced his new campaign to dunk for climate awareness. So we thought we'd revisit last year's conversation about CliFi. We spoke with Sarah Demick. Today, she's an assistant professor at Lafayette College and an expert in climate change fiction. Demick started the conversation by explaining where this genre came from. The genre has really important precedents, I think particularly literature about nuclear holocausts that we saw in the mid-20th century. So imagining environmental devastation on a global scale, or even something farther back, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was written in 1816, but was written in this summer right after the volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora. Mm. And in Europe at that time, because of the ash circulating in the atmosphere, It was a really wet, dark, gloomy summer. And within that atmosphere, Mary Shelley created this story about the limitations of scientific engineering and this real sense of gothic um, science. So those are important precedents. But climate fiction, as we think about it today, is really simultaneous with a growing concern about anthropogenic climate change or climate change caused by human activity. And so I think it took off in the 1990s, always hard to pinpoint, like an original tale. But for me, a real landmark moment would be Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower Mm -hmm. in 1993. And since then, we've seen a real outpouring of fiction right around the turn of the 21st century. You mentioned Octavia Butler. What other authors can we look to as being, you know, really prominent voices in this genre? When I think about the climate movement itself, I've been so excited recently to see voices of young people and indigenous voices really coming to the forefront. And I think we see a similar thing happening within climate writing. So a book I really have loved recently is The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimeline. She is a Matisse author from Canada. And that's a fabulous book about the arts of survival within an altered climate. It follows a young group of indigenous youths who are displaced from their homes and within this altered climate are trying to survive together. And I think that's such an important work because it draws on the longer histories of colonialism that still continue to impact the way we experience the climate crisis. Um, so that's one piece I would point to. Um, I also love some classics within the field, like Barbara Kingsolver's Flight Behavior is a fabulous depiction of how climate knowledge circulates within rural communities, particularly within Appalachia. And I think It's really important for all of us to read books that are being published outside the United States, too. So I like Auntie Tumanen's The Healer. It's a Finnish mystery novel. Mystery novels are always fun and page turners. And it thinks about climate change within the discourse of mystery and crime and how we think about guilt and culpability for the climate situation that we find ourselves within. Does Cli-Fi allow authors to explore or, or reckon with other parts of the world's history as, as some of the things that we've grown accustomed to, systems, break down in the face of climate change, that you have to have this reckoning with other parts of how we've lived up until now? 
Absolutely. Yes. I think that's one of the most important things that climate fiction is revealing right now. And I can point to a few novels that I think are grappling with how to tell these long form stories that think about future climates in relation to our histories of slavery, oppression um, and colonialism. And one that I've really been fascinated by is American War by Omar el Akkad. It's a story about a future civil war in the United States that is prompted by a restriction on fossil fuel usage. And the South secedes from the United States in order to continue a fossil fuel economy. And so we see these questions of energy and productivity and development and capitalism all playing into this story in really long form ways. There's obviously a lot of dystopian stories in in this genre, but I'm wondering about the stories where the problems are solved. I think about um, a canon like the Star Trek canon, where the future, though it has its issues, is ultimately pretty hopeful. What do we find there? Yeah. So one of the genres within climate fiction that I think is really lively right now is young adult writing. And I want to credit Stephanie Lee Menager for helping me think through this um, more thoroughly. But I think that within young adult fiction right now, we're seeing young protagonists who are really actively working to rethink how they live, not only in relationship to the environments around them, but in relation to each other. And so Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, which is a 1993 book, is a prime example of this. It features a 19-year-old protagonist who's trying to rethink how to build human community and how to save seeds and how to invest in some of these crafts and skills that produce the kind of just worlds that we're looking for. What relationship does climate change fiction have with actual scientific research on climate change. My colleagues who work in atmospheric sciences or geology will produce climate models. So they'll think about how we project the world climate within 50 or 100 or 200 years. And I think that fiction writers are doing a really similar project where they're trying to project future worlds, although they do that imaginatively instead of through data. How hopeful are you that this genre can elevate the conversations we have around climate change, considering that this is fiction, but it is based in the science um, that's being released over time? I'm very hopeful. I think that fiction writers have a crucial contribution for thinking about how we live on our present altered planet and also as the planet continues to change, often in very dramatic ways. I think that we need fiction writers' visions in order to think through how to live together and how to imaginatively craft new ways of thinking about human society. So we think about climate change not only through facts and figures, but also what these futures will look like in terms of social relationships, political relationships, and how we will experience them emotionally. For people who aren't familiar with the genre, maybe don't read a lot of science fiction, can you give us a couple of good entry point books to read? Absolutely. I love giving book recommendations. So I think a good entry point book would be Barbara Kingsolver's Flight Behavior. That is, I think, a useful book because it's grounded very specifically in one location. And so it's really a story about a community where people have lived for generations 
And suddenly this flock of monarch butterflies arrives. The migration has been um, rerouted because of shifts in temperature. And it's a question of how that community comes to understand the arrival of these butterflies. So it helps us see the ways in which climate knowledge percolates within human community and how relationships with neighbors and your belief systems really impact how you receive climate knowledge and how you transmit that knowledge. I also really, really enjoy a book called The Carbon Diaries. It's by a British writer named Sachi Lloyd, and it's a diary. Um, It chronicles this ordinary teenage girl named Laura Brown who lives in London as England begins to ration carbon usage. And it follows a period of extreme social unrest across Europe. And it's really a story of Laura grappling with confronting this new world, but also really confronting the apathy of older generations and the lethargy of climatic action. And it's, I think, a call to some of the youth movements that we're seeing. Um, I'm thinking particularly about activists like Greta Thunberg in Sweden, who are leading climate strikes, propagated mainly by children and young teens. That's Sarah Demick. She's an assistant professor at Lafayette College and an expert in climate change fiction. And that's today's Reset. Join us again tomorrow as we tackle the biggest local news stories of the week on our Friday News Roundup. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.